Good morning. So this is something we usually do during the baptism, but it's going to happen now instead. Um, so one of the things we like to see is that the work of God comes through through people. That we're all a product of stories God has written. And a lot of times those stories include a lot of other people. And so if you're here um, in support of Katie or Weston, family, teachers, disciplers, people that have had a part of their spiritual growth, or if you're here and they've made an impact on your life spiritually, would y'all stand up and let us recognize um, the work that you've had in each of their lives? Awesome. Thank you. I think that fits here so well because the passage we're about to go into is a collision between two things. It's a collision between Jesus' work being seen and will people believe that work and be changed eternally? Or will people see that work and resist and harden their heart and oppose the work of God? And you see how vital it is that people are part of the process, that people are part of, of showing the work of Jesus to each other, that people are part of that building work of God. But the, the question this text is going to press on us, are we going to be people, like we got to witness today, that God pursued and believed and were changed? And both the investment of others and the impact they've already made in the lives of others is evidence of what God has done. Are we going to be people who encounter and walk away, maybe another time. Encounter and walk away a little more resistant. Encounter, see the evidence, but oppose. To hold tightly to us. That's what the text is going to press on us. We're in, we're in John chapter 5, and as we're working there, the theme of John has been Jesus is the promised Christ and Son of God who offers eternal life to all who believe in Him. So that's the big theme of John Chapter 20, verse 31. Jesus is the promised Christ and Son of God who offers eternal life to all who believe. Believe in Christ, experience life, abundant life, full life, an eternal God quality of life. Even when it's hard. It's going to get hard in the next few chapters. Even when it's hard, it's a better life than the life we could have without Him. So that's the... That's that. And so chapter two through four has been knit together as a very tightly woven set of stories meant to be read together. And the theme is believe, believe, believe. And so we had the wedding of Cana, uh, the wedding where the water was turned into wine. And Jesus is like, I'm opening up the banquet of the messianic age. I'm opening up the banquet of salvation. And it will be a better, t- it'll be a better wine and a better celebration than anything this world offers. And the disciples saw his glory and they believed. And even in confronting Nicodemus, he's like, whoever believes in the Son will have life. And then the word of Jesus is believed by the Samaritans. And then the last part of that is that story we did last week. There was a nobleman whose son was sick. And he wanted to believe just for the signs, but he ended up encountering Jesus and believing the word of Jesus and then ultimately believing Jesus. And so he went from believing in signs to believing in Jesus. And that wraps up this unit. It's all about people encountering Jesus and believing. That will not be the case from here on out, always. It will not be the case today. Jesus will be encountered. And instead of faith, we're expecting faith. Where's the faith? 
we encounter opposition. He broke the rules. He doesn't look the way we want him to look. He doesn't keep our traditions. He doesn't do it the way we want him to do it. And opposition will be met. Resistance will be the response instead. So in John chapter 5, it goes like this. And so after the, the things of the past chapters, there was a feast. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there is the, a sheep gate in kind of the northern part of the city. There's a sheep gate, and there's a pool there, uh, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. And there's these roofed colonnades that are, that are in, the, in the complex. And there was a man there who had been, an, or a multitude of invalids were there, and, and there's blind and lame and paralyzed people there. And there was one man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus, when he saw him, knew that he had been there a long time. And so he asked him, do you want to be healed? And the man said, sir, there's no one to put me in the pool. And while I'm making my or when the water is stirred up, while I'm making my way down, someone comes in ahead of me and he goes in before me. And so Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And so the man was instantly healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now it was the Sabbath. And so the Jews that were there saw the man and said, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. And the man said, that man who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk. And they said, who is it that told you to take up your bed and walk? But the man did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn because there was a great crowd there. And after these things, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said, see, you have been made well. Sin no more. That a worse thing does not happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And so for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, my father is working until now. And I am working And so they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us a heart of faith. Give us wonder when we see the works of Jesus. Give us awe when we see the transforming power of Jesus to save Steal from us that grumbling spirit. Lord, a rule-keeping spirit that would cut off mercy from people. Steal from us a grumbling spirit that would keep back compassion from those who are hurting. God, do a work within us that keeps us filled with wonder and filled with awe at what you do and who you are. God, that stories like this would provoke in us a deeper love, a deeper awe, a deeper wonder. And God, if there's anyone here this morning, anyone here that's seen and turned away, heard and not believed, heard and resisted, heard and pushed back, God, would you open up their hearts to believe? 
Would you show them Jesus? Would you show them what the mercy of God walking among men, broken men, hurting men, what the mercy of God looks like? And God, that they would believe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're walking through the story, right, it's uh, another feast. And this is one of the normal settings of John is that he likes to set the backdrop of, of many of the signs that he reports of Jesus. And a lot of the backdrops that he sets is feasts. It is celebrations. It's gathering of the Jews. And so like, what is a feast when, when it talks about it in the text? Like we know what a feast is, right? Some of y'all are about to go have one if I let you out, right? Y'all are about to go. So what is it in this text? So in, in the Jewish calendar, there are these periodic celebrations of God, feasts or festivals, like holy days. And so they would mark the calendar on a pretty regular basis. And what it would do is it would have the nation stop and remember God. Stop and remember the deliverance of God. Stop and remember the work of God. And so throughout the calendar, there were these these celebration reminders, like... Remember that God has worked in our history. Remember that God has delivered us in our history. Remember the activity of God in your lives and in your, in your national identity. Remember God. And so it's in the background and we don't know which one. There's this feast of the Jews and so Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. And as he comes up to Jerusalem, we find that he comes to a, a particular area that's kind of in the northern part of the city where there's a little sheep gate in the wall. And, and near that, there's this pool, and it, it's called in, in Aramaic, which is the language of the Hebrews, it's called Bethesda. And so Bethesda is a word that means an outpouring, or flowing waters, or poured out waters. And it's also a word that means mercy. And so Jesus comes to the house of the outpouring, or he comes to the house of mercy, and that's the backdrop for where he is. And he comes and there's these five roof colonnades. So basically columns with roofs attached to them. And so to get relief from the, the blazing sun of Israel and the, and the burning heat of Israel, you would find that at the place of mercy, there were these roofs and many people who were sick, many people were blind and lame and paralyzed. They would gather in under these roofs to get relief from the, the sun and to be by this pool of mercy. Now there's something we got to deal with here. So y'all don't check out on me. If you re- look in your Bibles really closely, one of two things is what you're going to find there. You're going to find that the ver- that a number four, as in verse four, is missing and is not there. Or you're going to find that there's a longer ending to verse three and a verse four. And so we just got to deal with that. Let's throw it out there. And so it goes something like this, right? It's, it's um, that an angel would come down from time to time and he would stir the waters. And when he stirred the waters, the first one in would receive a healing. Right? And so that's that's the part that is not... In your text, or if it, or some translations, it is in there. And so what is it, what is it talking about? So something about this place of mercy, something about this pool, uh, it was, it was fed by the, kind of the pools of Solomon, but there's also springs under it, and the spring would bubble up and throw minerals everywhere. And so one of two things were happening, and we don't know what it is. So around this pool grew up, one, there's a real angel where God would send his angel and from time to time would supernaturally stir it up with an angel and he would supernaturally heal the first person in. Like, we don't doubt that could happen. We don't doubt that God could operate that way. So, like, there's no concern there whatsoever. But maybe it's that. A true angel comes down and a true healing takes place. Or it could be that surrounding this pool grew up a tradition grew up a a superstition. And so when there were these springs that would come up, like there would be the first one in and and it kind of became uh, more of a tradition and a legend. We don't know. 
We don't know what happened that the text is referencing. So we don't know if it was true or, or tradition, right? But in our best manuscripts and in our oldest manuscripts, that verse is not included. But we do know there's something happens and it's referencing something because look at verse 7, right? In verse 7, the man talks about nobody can put me in the pool and when the water is stirred up, Somebody beats me in. So clearly this man has either witnessed healings, you know, 38 years doing this thing. So he's either witnessed healings when the water stirs up or he has bought into this, this, this bigger tradition that whoever gets in there first is, is healed. And so what we think happened is some scribe along the way, the further you get away from Jerusalem and the further you get away from these stories attached to the place is the scribe went in and inserted an, an explanatory comment. And so it's not in our earliest, not in our best. It's probably not original to the text, but someone along the way that knew this story and knew verse seven was like, here, let me explain that. Um, do with that what you will, but just want you to like, as you see that, like my, there's a verse there you didn't read, Chris, or, uh, if you, if you read closely, like mine doesn't have a verse for it all. Just wanted you to understand that's kind of, that's why that is. And that's what's going on there. But either way, it, 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 it sets the stage for the story. It helps us understand why are there so many sick people? Why are there so many, what's called invalids, paral- uh, blind, lame, and paralyzed? Why are there so many flocking around here? It can't just be the shade. There's something attached to this particular pool that miracles happen here. And so it's in that backdrop. This man's laying there and he's been there 38 years. And so what John is setting the stage for us is the gravity of this man's condition. That for 38 years, he has suffered some sort of debilitation. For 38 years, he's lived with the hopelessness of that. And the layers of his soul that have been covered up with this ongoing illness, we can only guess. But, but they have rippled out, and we're going to see a little bit of evidence of it in the text. It is calloused, and it's hardened his soul, not just his body. And so for 38 years, he's laid there. There's a gravity to his illness that is meant to be felt by us. And then Jesus comes and he sees this man laying there. And supernaturally, he knows that this man has been there a long time. He knows this man's condition. And so he asks him, do you want to be healed? Now, our immediate thought, and I'm guilty, I've done it before too, is that we psychologize this text. Like the first step to healing is you actually have to want it. Or the first step to healing is you actually have to believe it. And and it makes sense, right? Because, I mean, all of us have this family member or this friend and swirling around their life is chaos and drama almost constantly, right? Do y'all have them? No? Okay, some of y'all do. Most of y'all do. If not, no, we won't. So, and so what becomes, is dysfunction becomes normal. And they cannot operate under normal, stable, healthy conditions. They can only operate in this, this, this new normal of theirs that's dysfunctional and chaotic and dramatic. And so you find them doing this, right? Things stabilize in the family for a minute and things are going pretty well. And then they jump in and it's like they have to blow something up or they jump in and they have to cause drama or they jump in and they have to cause chaos, right? Because dysfunction is comfortable. Dysfunction is a blanket they wear. Um, the struggles they have are a blanket they wear and they're, they know how to live with that. They don't know how to live with calm. They don't know how to live with normal and healthy. That's not what the text is doing, right? That's, that's a way we interpret it that I don't think it's meant to be. What is Jesus doing when he asks them the question, do you want to be healed? Well, he's doing what he always does. He's making an offer to this man. And he's also asking a question that's going to let this man tell us what's in his heart. Right? And so, do you want to be healed? 
immediately this guy, what's intended to happen and what happens in other places, what's intended to happen is like, could you be the one to do it? Are you offering me something different than what I'm currently living in? Is there hope in you that I might be healed? That's not what the man has in his heart. That's not his response. And so what he does say shows us something about his heart, something about his condition. And what does he say? Well, nobody can get me in the pool. And, you know, since I'm lame in some way or paralyzed in some way, I'm not able to get there ahead of people. And so while I'm going down, somebody always gets there before me. And you're tempted to be sympathetic, aren't you? Man, this poor guy, 38 years with an illness, 38 years with a deformity. He feels so isolated. I bet he feels so bad about that. I bet he has lost hope and he's hopeless. Probably true. The story does not let you feel sympathy for this man, though. The story does not want you to feel sympathy because there is a darkness on this man's soul, probably layered through the years of illness. And the, the, so it, what I think the, that you're meant to read in this response is layers of self-pity and layers of grumbling and layers of self-protection. And you're not meant to sympathize with this man. You're meant to see a glimpse into this man's soul that there's a darkness there that, that has nothing to do with the illness or that the, the illness being gone doesn't take away. And you're thinking, well, why do you say that? That's awful. You know, unsympathetic of you, Chris. Look at the man throughout the rest of the text. As soon as he is confronted and embarrassed, like he's taking up his bed and walking on the Sabbath, what's his response? Don't look at me, the dude that healed me. He's the one that made me walk. Like I wasn't going to take up my bed and break the Sabbath. He made me. And then he never took the time to actually know Jesus' name. So when he's confronted on the deal, he, he can't even say it was Jesus. He doesn't even know. But the most darning evidence... Is this. <laughs> Trying to be careful. You know, the kids are here, right? Look at what happens when Jesus finds them in the temple. He rats Jesus out to the Jews. Like, you're healed. Go for it. Don't sin anymore. And his first step after knowing who healed him is to go tell on Jesus to the Jews. You're not meant to have sympathy for this man. He remains trapped in some bitterness, trapped in some form of grumbling, trapped in some form of self-pity, trapped in some form of self-protection. And he stays there even when his body is set free from its illness. And that can happen to us. You see, suffering and illness, outward circumstances, right? They create challenges. They create barriers. They create hardships. They are hard to deal with. But it's not just the physical circumstances, is it? It's not just the pain. It's not just the suffering. It's not just the illness. These layer of things accumulate in our soul. Like when we start to get self-pitying and defeated, we start to get hopeless. We start to get defeated. We start to get grumbly. We start to get all these things. Jesus' redemption saves us, Right? But Jesus' redemption also walks down into our souls and points out the self-pity because he wants to redeem and restore every part of us, not just bodies and not just souls and not just our salvation. He wants to go into the dark places of our heart and not leave them dark when he's done. He wants to go into the self-pity and yank it out and put the goodness of who he is in its place. He wants to walk down into our self-protection and yank it out and say, look, I'm a better protection. He wants to walk down into our grumbling spirit and put a heart of gratitude and life and grace there. 
And redemption hasn't had its full effect just because our circumstances change. Redemption's had its full effect when it saves us and then goes down into each of those dark corners and puts light in its place. And that's so much better than our circumstances changing. That's so much better than in the being healed is being made whole deep within ourselves. And this man is healed, but this man is never made whole, at least to our knowledge. And so, do you want to be healed? Nobody's there to put me in. You know, like I'm all alone. Nobody will even help me out. And somebody steals my healing. And then Jesus speaks a word of power over his life, right? Get up. Jesus' voice commands creation. Jesus' voice commands this man's healing. And he is healed. And then just as we've seen the gravity of his illness 38 years, we're seeing the completeness of Jesus' healing. Get up and take up your bed. And so whatever his paralysis is, whatever his lameness is that he's having to deal with, he's taking a mat. It's not, you know, not one of our mattresses, but it's a decently heavy mat. And he's so completely healed that he can take up the weight of this mat and he can walk out of that place. So there's this, this depth of illness and then there's this completeness of healing that we're meant to see. But then we get the main conflict of the text, don't we? The ominous, no, it was the Sabbath. And if you've read the Gospels and are familiar with Jesus' ministry, then you know a problem is about to come. You know that somebody's not going to like that Jesus did something good for somebody on the Sabbath. Like, don't you know it's church day? You can't do anything good on church days. Right? right? That's So, it was the Sabbath and the man takes up his bed. And they're like, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. It's against the rules. So let's think about, all right, what is this Sabbath thing? All right, we need a background because Jesus is constantly working on the Sabbath. Jesus is making a point to like drive home. I am going to press on your rules and I'm going to press on your views because I'm not going to let you stick to your rules and traditions and stay hidden away safely thinking, man, I'm righteous because I keep the rules. I'm righteous because I don't do anything bad on church days. I'm righteous because there's no basketball on church days. I'm righteous because, you know, I don't cut the grass on church days. And he's like, I'm not letting you hide there because that's not nearly close enough. And so he walks into our rules and he walks into our traditions over and over again to press on them. And so he, you know, he's got his disciples at one time. They're walking through the field and they just pick up a thing of grain and rub it in their hands to crush it and eat it because they're hungry. You're breaking the rules. Why do you let your disciples break the rules? You know, a woman who's been sick for years comes and they're like, let's see if he's going to do anything on the Sabbath. They're like, we're going to get him now. And he's like, you guys have donkeys that go off into ditches and you jump in immediately to help them Sabbath or not. But this is a daughter of God. And you would have her not restored, not healed on the Sabbath. What's wrong with you people? Like what is wrong with you people when you let the rules of God cut off the mercy of God from the lives of others? You're missing it. And so a few statements. I'm going to give you three statements about the Sabbath that Jesus makes. To make it a, a, a fuller view. So in one of these cases, Jesus is like, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So think about this. The stage is set. You broke the rules, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, but since I'm God and I'm sovereign over the Sabbath and it's my Sabbath, not yours. I don't know that you're exactly qualified to critique my Sabbath activities. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, right? 
And then another one, as he's going through that, he's like, the Sabbath is made for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. See, they've totally blown up God's purposes for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is God's good gift to people to restore their souls through worship and to restore their bodies through rest. And it's God's like, here, have a gift from me of my goodness. And what they've done is taken this burden lifting Sabbath for you to go get rest and restored and made this whole new burden of like, here's some rules. Make sure you don't break the rules on Saturday. Like, man, once that last beam of sun drops Friday, you better get it straight. It's like, so this good gift of God is taken away from them and a burden is placed in its place. And so what is the Sabbath, right? Six days shall you labor and on the seventh day you should rest because the Lord your God made the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And so the Sabbath, most commentators would say, is resting from your customary, like in our case, Monday through Friday job, like resting from your normal work activities, right? And it is a law. It is part of the Ten Commandments. Now, how it works out today, that's a story or a whole thing we're not going to get into today. But it's basically, there's this law. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. The nation had been judged for messing with the Sabbath, right? And so, like, here it is. It's not lawful to do what on the Sabbath? Your customary work. I'm guessing this guy isn't a mattress mover. So... Picking up his bed is not customary work. They've got 39 categories of things you can do and things you can't do and all kinds of rules to make sure nobody breaks the Sabbath while they miss that the, the Sabbath was God's gift to people. Like, let me tell you about ancient life. No retirement plans. You know, some people obviously had money, not all of them. No retirement plans. You work seven days a week till you die. That's what it takes to live. That's what it takes to survive. You work seven days a week till you die. So can you imagine God's people being planted into that surrounding culture and God saying, I can provide better for you in six days with me than you can possibly provide for yourselves in seven days of your labor until you die. I am going to give you the gift. If you'll believe me as your provider, if you'll believe that I care for you and can take care of you, if you'll believe that, right? If you will believe in the Sabbath, And rest, I will give you this break. I will give you a day to worship. I will give you a day to remember me. And I will give you a day to recharge your body to go work the other six days. But you have to believe I can provide for you. You have to believe I care for you and can take care of you. And that's the Sabbath. It's God's gift to man. The Sabbath is made for man. It's made because you are not God and you must rest. You are not God. You wear out. You're not God. You cannot control. You're not God. You cannot provide for yourself. You can't even control whether you get the next breath or not. Only he can. Right? And so he's like, the Sabbath is made for man. It's a gift of God to man. It's not made for, like, this day, this impersonal day is not getting served. And then the last thing about the Sabbath that I want to point out is, right, that they had made, not the law part, but they had made the rules get in the way of mercy. The rules had gotten in the way of compassion. And so, like, when Jesus is talking about, this lady has been, has been sick for years. Why would you, for the sake of keeping the rules... Cut off life and mercy and compassion from this woman. What is wrong with you people? And then we have to look at ourselves. Where do my traditions, where do my views of other people, where do my biases, where do I cut the mercy of God off from people that need it? Because my rules. 
Where do I cut the mercy of God off from people because of my traditions? Where do I cut people off from the compassion, the restoring compassion of God in their lives? Because of my biases. Like what barriers do I put up between people and the mercy of God? Now look, I'm not talking about the cheap grace junk that runs around church, right? I'm talking about blood-soaked grace. Blood-soaked compassion that restores human beings. I'm talking about that stuff we can't cut off because of our rules. And look what happens to these people. I mean, I mean, catch this. Like it, it doesn't register with them, but hopefully it does with you. And so the guy that healed me, he told me to take it up. Like that's where you might want to stop and be like, wait, the guy healed you? Like God just stepped into our world and lavished mercy on you and restored you to health? Like let's stop and celebrate. Let's stop and get excited over a moment like this. Let's, let's forget about what day it is and like you are healed. But what is their first response? Who's this rule breaker again that told you to stand up? Who's this rule breaker again that would heal somebody on the Sabbath? Like you're missing the point. Big time. So he said to get up and walk. And they're like, well, who is it? We got to find this guy. You're not important anymore. You're a little fish. You're going to go on. But we need to find the Sabbath breaker. Who is he? And the guy's like, I don't know. Because Jesus had withdrawn. There's a huge crowd there, right? You do a miracle in the middle of a, you know, a multitude of, of sick people, you can get mobbed, right? And so he, he does this one, he withdraws and he moves on. But then another big statement, another interesting statement comes in and Jesus goes and finds him in the temple, right? When all this is over. And he's like, see, you're well. And he makes a statement that I don't want us to miss. You've been made well, sin no more, that something worse does not come upon you. He is linking this man's illness. He is linking this man's suffering to this man's sin. And there is a connection there that we cannot sidestep because it is it is linked into the text. There is something about this man's life that caused his suffering and caused his illness. So what do we do with that? Like, we got to unpack that. That's a tough one, right? So in the ancient world, it would not be that tough. In the ancient world, it would be like this. This is the way things are. Uh, when we go to Peru, it's the same thing. Like if you do good things, good things happen. If, if something really bad happens to you, it means you did something bad that you didn't get caught for. And God's making it right. Like that's a normal wor- That's a normal view of animistic people. That's a normal view of the ancient cultures. Right. If you've read Job, you've, you've seen that, right? Job, would you just get it right with God? Because all this bad stuff could not have happened to you if you hadn't really blown it with God. And Job's like, bring God down and let's talk. Because I, you know, Job was was suffering for his righteousness. Right? And that's what we know that Job and his friends didn't know. And so in the ancient world, that was a normal view. In John chapter 9, the same thing. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? So we, we get this glimpse into this ancient view. And it's only partially true. So here's, I'm going to make two statements to try to help us understand this. First, there is some suffering and some illness that is directly attached to people's specific sin. There is some suffering and some illness that is directly attached to people's specific sin. Right, And so if you were to read 1 Corinthians 11, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you have even fallen asleep because you've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Uh, James chapter 5, which we read in Sunday school this morning. Right, Confess your sins to one another. And it talks about that you may be healed. 
So there was something about the, the, the suffering of James 5 and, and the sin of the people of James 5 that that, that was part of it. Um, and so, what was another one? I don't know. I had another reference. I can't remember it right now. But in the Bible, there are certain sufferings and illnesses that are attached to the behaviors of people. Right? And then in this case, that is what's happening. The second thing I would say, because we need to balance this, right? Most suffering and most illness is not the direct result of a person's specific sin. Most suffering and most illness is not the direct result of a person's specific sin. So in the account in John chapter 9, when we get there, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God might be put on display, that the glory of God might be put on display. That we, through walking through suffering that is part of every experience of every person in the fall, we will all suffer. No way around it. So part of a Christian walking through the experience of suffering and illness in the fall is to say, can I put God on display as more worthy than what I am losing through this suffering? Can I put God on display as infinitely worthy and provided for me an eternity that is better in his kingdom than the suffering, what suffering is taking from me in this moment? Or John chapter 15, like those whom he loves, he prunes that they may bear much fruit. So that there's part of the pruning process of God where God uses suffering to maximize our joy in him and to maximize the impact that our lives have on the lives of others. So God, yes, suffering is part of all of our experience, but God in the lives of Christians makes suffering intentional. He makes it purposeful. It's not wasted by God. He is a good God. And he does not waste your pain. He does not waste what you face. He uses it in your life. He uses it through your life. And he uses it to usher you in and prepare for you this eternity that is so much better where it all goes away and there's no sickness or crying or mourning or death or any of that stuff anymore. And we're being prepared for that world. And so, yes, some sin leads to directly suffering and illness. That is a partial, that's a truth, but it's a part of the picture. Most sin and most illness is not that kind. And so can I walk through the hard stuff of my life displaying that God is better than my health? And God is better than good circumstances. And God is better than promotions and better than raises and better than the stuff I can accumulate and better than people being nice to me and accepting me. God's purposeful with our suffering. Can we walk through it displaying him? See that you sin no more and nothing worse may happen to you, that a final judgment doesn't come on you. And so look what this man does. He goes off and he tells the Jews. It was Jesus. And so the Jews harass and pressure and pursue and hate Jesus. Why? For breaking the Sabbath. Why? For giving the mercy of God to people who need it on the Sabbath. For taking a man who's been sitting there for 38 years suffering and taking his suffering away, but it happened to be on a Sabbath. And they're persecuting him for that. And this is where you're like, man, if people start to push back on what I believe or people start to push back on what I say, then what am I going to do? I'm going to just kind of walk away and rephrase it because, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. That is not Jesus's approach. Look at what Jesus does. Oh, you don't like that I heal on the Sabbath? You don't like that I break the rules? It's not the law. The rules. You don't like that I break the rules? Man, that's not your real problem with me, though. You know what your real problem with me is? I am God, and you will either honor me as God or you will reject me as God. Like, that's your problem with me. You see that? Like, my father is working till now. You know God's always at work around you? Like, that's Henry Bygaby. 
Like the father has never stopped working from the beginning of time. The father has not stopped working out his plan of redemption. He has not stopped working, restoring people. He's not stopped working, pursuing people and drawing them to himself. Like the father doesn't stop going after people. And so Jesus is like, and I don't either. I will never stop the work of redemption for a day. I will never cut off the mercy of God because it's a day. I will never stop doing the mission that God sent me for because it's a day. The father's working and just like the father, I'm working too. And you may think, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, you sure could fool the people that were closest to him and had the most to lose if he was right. Because look what they did. They're not trying to persecute him anymore because of what he did. They're trying to kill him for what he said. Because they got it very clearly. He is making himself out to be God. Right? Equal with God. Why? Because he's calling God his own father. And so Jesus is like, you got a problem with what I do? Great. Let me put in your lap this truth, this astounding, glorious, beautiful truth. God has tabernacled. God has become flesh and he is living among you. God has become flesh and he is healing the broken places of this world. God has become flesh and he's made this man whole and I'm him. And they're like, we're going to kill this guy. And so in chapters two through four, faith, 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 faith. A little suspicion, but faith. Saving, transforming faith. And there is not one ounce of faith in this story. The page has turned. And instead of encountering signs that lead to faith, we're encountering signs that are going to lead to opposition. That are going to lead to rejection. They're going to lead to hostility. And it's only going to get worse from here. And so now when faith shows up throughout the book, faith is going to isolate people. Faith is going to cause harassment to people. Faith is going to cause people to get kicked out of the establishment. But they don't care. They've met Jesus. They don't care. Their lives have been changed and saved forever. They don't care that they're cast out because of it. But from here on out, all of his signs are going to have this element of hostility attached to them, even while rescuing people who will. See, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Who believed in his name. Who were born not of the will of man and not of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. And that's what the story is unfolding for us. Will we be people who see and believe? Will we be people who harden our hearts and resist? Harden our hearts and reject Harden our hearts and move away. And will we be people that lets Jesus go pry around in our souls and pull the things, the shadows and the darkness out so that light doesn't just save us, but that light invades every single part of our experience? A few practical things as we close out. I know I didn't fill in the blanks. We'll figure it out from there. Redemption restores broken places in our souls, just like we've talked about. Our guilt, our shame, our wallowing, our self-pity, our self-protection. Like Jesus walks into all of that. And he, 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 he wants to invade and have access to all of that and pull it out. It's not the stuff that provides abundant life. Yeah, I know life has probably hurt some of you very deeply. I know that suffering has probably visited your doorstep and probably way more than it has mine. But in the midst of that, Jesus cares. In the midst of that, Jesus can take care of you. And in the midst of that, Jesus wants to walk into every one of those places and pull stuff out. Pull out the weeds that have tangled up your heart and put life in its place. So we let him 
Redemption is meant to restore all those broken places. Second thing, err on the side of compassion. Holiness matters. Big time. Truth matters. Big time. Like this book, hopefully you figured it out by now. It matters to me big time. But don't let that stuff stand in the way of God-defined, grace-soaked, blood-soaked compassion for people. Because it's easy to take truth and then add these layers of rules and these layers of looking at people that are different than us and these layers of looking at people that have different political philosophies from us. And it's easy to add all these layers on top of this book. And because of these layers, not let the mercy of this book touch the lives of people different than us. And if we do that, we're these people in the book. We're not the people that run away you know, skipping and rejoicing, hearts bursting with gratitude. We're these people. If we let our accumulation of rules cut off mercy, life-giving mercy from people. And so err on the side of compassion because all that stuff matters, but people matter too. The last one I'll hit, Jesus offends, but we shouldn't. Like don't hide parts of God's word. Don't hide parts of who Jesus is just like he didn't. You know, he could have, he could have, uh, Slowed things down drastically if he had just been like, dude, sorry. You know, I saw him. I I just wanted to help him. I'm sorry. I'm going to move on. Jesus was not willing to sacrifice confronting them with who he was for the sake of them accepting him and being relevant to them. And we can't either. Right? Don't trim truths that our culture doesn't like or trim truths that are hard for people to accept. Say, like, here's the full beauty and glory of Jesus. Here's the full beauty and glory of how this life is meant to live that provides maximum joy and satisfaction in him. Here's the things that he declares are true, right, and good. And I'm not going to back away from them just because you don't like it. But let Jesus be the offense. Let the cross be the offense. Don't be the offense yourself. Like, you don't be offensive. Let him handle that, okay? Don't back away from the hard truths, but you don't be the offensive one. Where we should expect faith in this text We find opposition at its place. Where we should expect to find someone whose heart explodes with gratitude, we find a heart trapped with grumbling instead. Jesus faces a lot of opposition because of his offense to our religious traditions. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you take my feeble words and declare this glorious Christ and his glorious life and his glorious salvation and his glorious restoration of people and press it on the hearts of others, God, that they may turn and believe. Press it on the hearts of of all of us, God, where we see rules and traditions getting in the way of you, Father. Where we see we don't have mercy when it comes to certain kinds of people. Certain kinds of sin. God, would you let this story rip those parts of our heart out. So that we love people not because they first love you, but because you loved them and sent your son and you sent us too. God, make us those kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.